Hello and welcome to episode 115 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast where two friends stopped arguing about movies and started working through them together. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Ebling. Once again, tis the season for our 10th annual holiday spooktacular. And since this is also our gap year, we picked a horror movie neither of us have seen, Ari Aster's 2018 hit Hereditary. While we've both seen his follow-up Midsommar, we hadn't gotten around to seeing the movie that actually put Ari Aster on the map. Given the autumn chill in the air, we thought it was about time we watched it. Upon its release, Hereditary was a hit with audiences and critics immediately. It cemented A24 as the hot new indie studio and christened writer-director Ari Aster as the hot new voice in horror. On top of earning over $82 million worldwide, there was even Oscar buzz for Tony Collette. She didn't end up getting the nod, but her performance was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award, along with Ari Aster's nomination for Best First Film. Word of mouth was the film's best publicist, as audiences flocked to see what all the fuss was about. In the intervening years, the praise has become less universally laudatory, but Aster's reputation stands strong. But does strong word of mouth mean an actually good movie? Or is this a movie whose head we should knock off with a telephone pole? Keep listening. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. She had private rituals, private friends, private anxieties. It honestly feels like a betrayal just to be standing here talking about her. She was a very difficult woman to read. If you ever thought you knew what was going on with her, and God forbid you tried to confront that, But when her life was unpolluted, she could be the sweetest, warmest, most loving person in the world. She was also incredibly stubborn, which maybe explains me. You could always count on her to always have the answer. And if she ever was mistaken, well, that was your opinion, and you were wrong. All right, so that was uh, Tony Collette as Annie speaking at her mother's funeral uh, right near the beginning of the movie we're talking about today, Hereditary. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had a complicated relationship with her mom. Is it safe to say? Well, it's safe to say that's what she's basically alluding to in her own eulogy there. Mm-hmm. But uh, boy, you you uh, figure out a little bit more about that complication as the movie goes on. You do. Um, it, it, it's complicated in a way that you uh, you probably never guessed. <laughs> Even if you tried, I don't think. No. So, uh, anyways, um, what would we say happy holiday spooktacular? Oh, uh, sure. Uh, happy, an unpleasant holiday spooktacular to, to you and yours. Thank you. That seems very appropriate. Yeah. Uh, and so same to you. I hope it's the most unpleasantest of uh, spooktaculars for you. Oh, I can only this, hope. This spooky evening. And to our listeners yeah. who are listening in on our spooky yeah. 10th annual holiday spooktacular. Yeah, the, 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 the spookiest of all anniversaries. They are aware that it is the season mm-hmm. and they have decided to tune in and uh, we are so happy to also fuse this with our gap year. Yeah. And and frankly, there I think we're quite a few gaps in this genre for mm-hmm. us because as we sort of talked about at the end of our last episode, we're kind of wimps. We're, 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 we're yeah. <laughs> when it comes we're to babies. horror movies. Yeah. And uh, we, we talked about it a little bit uh, at the end of our last episode, but I think it's worth talking about maybe why we hadn't watched this movie yet, uh, yeah. why this is was a gap uh, because, I mean – it certainly made a splash and uh-huh. it's not that old. So we were very no. aware and even doing this podcast while this oh, yeah. had come out, we That's had been true. several years into this podcast. That's true. Uh, yeah. So you want to hear about why I haven't watched it or well, what, why I was, what, why this movie, what were your thoughts on it before we decided to dive into mm. it? Um, had you been curious to watch it? Yes, or? I had been. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm just a big baby and, when people talked about this movie, they talked about it as being like really 
something. Whether I, it was twisted or yes. shocking or disturbing yeah. is, is, yeah, that's different than spooky. Right. You know? It's kind of doing something Some, yeah. that you're a little, mm-hmm. you don't know what to think of it. Yeah. Um, Which I've watched and enjoyed unsettling movies. I would say The Witch is unsettling. Yeah. I probably won't watch The Witch again. That's um, a great movie, though. But it is a great movie. And I've seen unsettling movies that are pointless. And I've seen unsettling movies that were works of art, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it would have near the same impact now, but in high school, when I watched The Exorcist, oh, I yeah. found that incredibly unsettling, it, especially being deeply religious at it that It probably time. would still unsettle you. Sure. I yeah. I, I mean, I it's just it so effective. I saw it as an adult for the first time, and it was... It was real spooky. Um, and um, part of it was there was so much hype around The Exorcist. My mom telling me it was the scariest movie she had ever seen and she will never watch it again. And I was like, ooh, yeah. I want to go down that road. And yep. then like uh, Hereditary, just to me, the buzz around it felt like, um, boy, this was a really effective and right. unsettling horror movie. Yeah. And I, I don't think I've shared this. I, I, I did try watching it once. I had actually just seen Midsommar and mm-hmm. I really liked that movie. Yeah. And um, I was like, I should really watch Hereditary. And I got it, like I got it on uh-huh. D- on Blu-ray uh-huh. and popped it in. Mm-hmm. And I saw like the scenes with the miniatures at the very, very beginning. And then the sound design came in uh-huh. and the pace of it. And I was uh-huh. like, eh, You weren't ready for it? Tonight's not the night. Well, that's interesting you say that because I didn't tell you this, but I also <laughs> what? tried watching this movie. <laughs> <clears throat> I... I feel like it was pretty close to when the movie came out. Our daughter had just been born. Mm. So I started it and then I didn't keep watching it. It wasn't because I was too scared. It was just like, I don't know, I was falling asleep or something. Mm. Or, yeah. And then I just never got back to it. Right. And after Midsommar, I was sort of like, I, I liked it, but I found that unsettling. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. I don't know if I'm ready for another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I, uh, a, a former student of mine had seen it, and he really hated it. He just thought it was really bad. Hmm. And so I was like, well, okay. I guess I don't need to hurry. And I don't know the last time. I, yeah, I've seen movies that were really have freaked me out recently. I think the movie Men, actually. Oh, I haven't seen that I yet. I really is it, is it worth seeing? It's worth seeing, yeah. It's disturbing. Okay. Like, it's strange, but it's definitely worth seeing. Uh, that's the Alex Garland, yeah, uh, his latest. Yep. So I, you know, I, I watch unsettling things. I saw, I have seen in the time that Hereditary's been out, I've seen unsettling yes. movies. You know, we've been plenty disturbed yeah, by things. I know. do feel like it feels like A twenty four has sort of taken the mantle from Bloomhouse, even though A twenty four does a, a lot of different types of movies. Like if it's an A twenty four horror movie, it's like you kind of know you're getting one of those like unsettling sort mm-hmm. of movies yeah like would you call this more along the lines of like a psychological horror i but guess so I, I, the, well, the problem that's is why it feels like a few movies in one it is for sure but it was one of those where it was just like not only were people unable to really say what it was about but they couldn't even tell you like is it okay so is what it like is it a is ghost it? movie is mm-hmm. it like a possession movie is it a it was just like uh, maybe yeah, you have to just see it i don't want to tell you <laughs> yeah what made me want to see it was people saying tony collette should get an oscar for this yeah um which since it was horror obviously she didn't and she really is incredible in it well we should get into it really all right because might as well. what might, i'd love to talk a little bit more about her performance yeah. and um all that kind of stuff so why don't we just uh you know uh just, in the spirit of the season yeah let's do what we ever what we always do and uh, uh would, you, would you like to talk some some letterbox ratings on yeah this? um so i i rated it as soon as i finished it so my gut reaction at the time was three and a half okay maybe the conversation will raise it maybe i will concede some things about it i i don't have a axe to grind with it i just i, I thought it was fine okay um, my gut reaction, I think, um, well, I watched this a couple nights ago and I think, um, I'm going to probably put it at, I'll put it at four. Okay. Um, I could see it maybe going a little higher. I still think I liked, I liked, uh, Midsommar more going than Going to this. four and a half? We'll see. Okay. It depends because 
then what happened was this, you know, in, in the preparation for this podcast, I read a few other things mm-hmm. um, and specifically read an interview with Ari Aster where he, he didn't, he wasn't shy or coy at all about what his like goals were, his intentions, what he was trying to do. Um, and I was like, oh, you know, that's, that's kind of cool. It's like four stars for me in the sense of like, was it effective as a horror movie? I mean, I was pretty creeped out while I watched it. And then kind of thinking about, well, what's it doing for the genre? Um, and I think it's it's trying at least to do some pretty interesting things. Okay. But, you know, we need to get into that, I guess. Yeah, and so, I didn't get into any of that stuff, so I it's entirely possible that I'm just sort but, of... But, you know, the movie's got to hang on its own. To it. Yeah. Just because you have those goals yeah, 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 of course. doesn't necessarily mean, well, you know, A for effort. <laughs> it's right. like, you've, it's got to actually do it. It's got to pull it off, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, all right, let's let's... Keep going with Tony Collette. Then is that what we want to talk about first, or do you want to talk about other things and then build up to? Hey, we can talk Tony about Collette's Tony Collette because honestly, this movie uh, kind of hinges on that performance. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think actually, let's just say I think the whole, I think the casting of the entire family is really good. Are you not with? I do, okay, I didn't love Gabriel Byrne. I thought he oh, was, as as the father. Yeah, I yeah. thought he was. Little, he was there. He was just a little, little flat. Dry, little one note. Yeah. I don't know what I would have wanted from a different actor in that performance, but generally speaking, I felt like he he certainly didn't hang with Tony Collette. Well, and I also wonder if I mean, out of all the characters, he's kind of the most underwritten. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot there for yeah. the father in this. Mm-hmm. And I do think the son Peter, uh, Peter played by Alex, Alex Wolf. Wolf, um, does a great job. Yes. And of course, Millie Shapiro as Charlie. Right. Is fantastic. But mm-hmm. on but Tony Collette is yeah. she has to this do a movie. And that's where I'm kind of like, yeah, I, I totally agree that there should have been some more recognition for this performance because she has to do so much. Right. I mean, if you were just to not have this be a horror movie and have it just be a family drama, yeah. she has to deliver a really powerhouse performance of someone going through grief, and she totally does mm-hmm. it. Oh, and, and we haven't even talked about like Ann Dowd. Oh, right. Who's so good. Always, always, always good, incredible. Right? Although if she shows up, you got to know, like, is she ever going to play just a straight, sweet character? Like, <laughs> there's always something else going on there underneath. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I saw. It. She's if I saw actually, her in real life, and she was just, and she ended up just being a really nice person, yeah. I'd be like, yeah, but, but there's, you. but what's going on? Really? Why, why'd you stab Ann Dowd? She was too nice. <laughs> she was going to do something. And we know, we know <laughs> when Ann Dowd's being nice, Ann there's Dowd. something going on. She's. I saw. Uh, I didn't know there was a new Exorcist movie coming out, mm-hmm. but she's in this. She's in that. I saw a trailer for it yesterday. She's probably bad. I, well, yeah. But Tony Collette, like, and this is kind of what I wanted to get at with even bringing in that interview with Ari Aster, which I might bring in other parts later. But one of the things to me that is very important, I think, to think about with this movie is that it was very much actually influenced by those sort of family trauma melodramas, like Ordinary People. Hmm. Uh, and like in the bedroom and like mm-hmm. those kind of movies, like those were actually equally influences to him as any sort of horror movie. Hmm. Um, the one thing I didn't really realize about Ari Aster is that it seems like now he's kind of become known as like a horror filmmaker, but mm-hmm. that was never really his, like he just wants, he just wanted to be a filmmaker and mm-hmm. he's made short films that weren't necessarily horror films. And at the time he was just trying to get his first feature made. Hmm. What he wanted to do was take the family melodrama and he felt like it had a certain formula to it where a really bad tragedy happens and you watch the family deal with it and it's hard and it's moving, but there is always sort of a formula near the end that's like, but they're going to be okay. Yeah, unrealistically linear. Yes. Mm -hmm. And his he really just wanted to make a movie that just showed that life doesn't always work like that. Like sometimes you have a really bad tragedy happens and then you haven't even gotten through that and another one happens, mm. and another one happens, and life just kind of piles on. Mm. But to make a movie like that would ostracize everybody. It'd be like a movie for like three people. Like nobody's <laughs> going to want to sit through that. That's like Manchester by the Sea. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Perfect. You know, it's a perfect example. Like very few people want to sit through a movie like that. But what a movie! Freaking awesome movie. <laughs> but I think Manchester by the Sea was only able to get made because Kenneth Lonergan had a reputation that preceded him. Yeah. This is a guy trying to make his first film and he wants to make a family melodrama tragedy 
that doesn't give you an easy answer at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and he realized that if he just channeled it through horror, that was a way to actually do it, but in a way that an audience would actually want to watch. Mm-hmm. If you sort of take that into account, you don't need to know that going into the movie, but mm-hmm. knowing that for me, I mean, he said that original cut of this movie was three hours long. Wow. And all the other stuff was just family drama, mm. not a lot of horror. And there was a lot of just like building the family dynamic and a lot of just straight drama scenes from, the, from mm-hmm. this. But that's all circling back to me saying that as far as I'm concerned, Tony Collette did a fantastic family melodrama performance. Mm-hmm. Like everything you would want from that kind of movie. Mm-hmm like the scenes where she's at like the grief counseling mm-hmm. um, and she's just, you know, the levels of performance in there with her body even, oh, and yeah. you know, the hesitation she has and just the pauses that she gives. And it's just like a, it's mm-hmm. just such a flawless performance. I yeah. feel like it's so multidimensional. Yeah. And then she lived in our house at the end before hospice. We weren't even talking before that. I mean, we were, and then we weren't, and then we were, She's completely manipulative until my husband finally enforced a no-contact rule, which lasted until I got pregnant with my daughter. I didn't let her anywhere near me when I had my first, my son, which is why I gave her my daughter, who she immediately stabbed her hooks into. And I just, I felt guilty again, I felt guilty again. When she got sick, not that she was really even my mom at the end, and not that she would ever feel guilty about anything. I just don't want to put any more stress on my family. I'm not even really sure if they could could give me that support. And I just I just feel I just sometimes feel like it's all ruined. <laughs> and then I realize that I am to blame. Or not that I'm too blamed, but I am blamed. And what do you think you feel blamed? And there's nothing really horror in itself about those scenes. No, it's interesting, though, the scene where she kind of snaps at dinner. Because you know it's a horror movie, that has a note in there. Like, it's scary. It just seems like they're... Might be something you want to say. Yeah. Like what? I mean, why would I want to say something so I could watch you sneer at me? Sneer at you? I don't ever sneer at you. Oh, sweetie, you don't have to. You get your point across. Okay, so fine. Then say what you want to say then. Peter. I don't want to say anything. I've tried saying Okay, so try again. Release yourself. Oh, release you, you mean? Yeah, fine. Release me. Just say it. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. Do you understand? All I do is worry and slave and defend you. And all I get back is that fucking face on your face. So full of disdain and resentment and always so annoyed. Well, now your sister is dead. And I know you miss her. And I know it was an accident, and I know you're in pain, and I wish I could take that away for you. I wish I could shield you from the knowledge that you did what you did, but your sister is dead. She is gone forever. And what a waste. If it could have maybe brought us together or something. If you could have just said, I'm sorry, or faced up to what happened, maybe, Pam, we could do something with this, but you can't take responsibility for anything. So now I can't accept and I can't forgive because because nobody admits anything they've done. It's a vicious performance. There. Yeah. And her performance is what makes it have, have any sort of terror in it. But also like what grief can do to people is scary, but I also don't yeah. want to make it seem like the movie is saying grief is scary in a way of like advocating avoiding it sure yeah but to viscerally depict it as scary is i think unique certainly seeing it as sad but seeing it as 
as scary and, and a threat to a family is a different sort of side of it. That's almost a horror that we don't even want to go down. Like, do we even really want to go down that yeah, road? Like right. the way she reacts in the bedroom mm-hmm. to the death of Charlie mm-hmm. is just horrific. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a similar thing that you kind of saw with Midsommar, where we yeah. think of grief as depression, sadness. The initial just, horror was losing her sister. And then from there, yes, more horror played out. Right. I think one of the things that he is drawing out that's so horrifying, especially as a parent, is the haunting of knowing that everything you did while they were alive is everything you will do while they were mm-hmm. alive. And so for Florence Pugh's character in Midsommar, and I think for a lot of people who deal with the loss of someone through suicide, is the haunting of mostly what didn't you do yeah. to prevent that or how could you have helped someone, you know, whatever. It seems like for Tony Collette, the haunting is the type of mother she was mm. to her. And that is a super existentially scary thought to think if your child's life ended today, all you have is what you already did. Yeah. Now, did you did you see what happened to Charlie coming at all? Uh, her head getting knocked off? Just dying, period. I didn't. I I felt like something was going to happen to her just because what a stupid idea to send her to that party. Right. But I, I, no, I guess, I guess I thought it would be a close call. Yeah, I didn't see it coming. The movie at the beginning, it starts out giving you a very ominous tone right away from the get-go. Yeah. But you don't really, you cannot really figure out what it's all leading up to at all. Right. And then when that happens, I was like, oh, I didn't think it was going to be that. No. I didn't think it was going to be the loss of a child. I was just like... This took such a tragic turn. I said, God, truly horrific. Like really leaning into depths of total depression that something like that would put someone into. A horror movie usually doesn't have time for that. Right. You know, like we're going to get on to the killing. Yeah. Right. I guess the thing about Charlie's death is it feels contrived. (laughs) Well, and I think it, it, it does. Like, did she have to have her head knocked off? You well, know? like, couldn't she have died from anaphylactic shock? That might have been even more tragic. That, like, she just died in the car because he couldn't get there fast enough versus he swerved and she was sticking her head out at that moment and they were passing a pole and that was like... For sure. And this is where I started to realize I might need to watch this again because obviously, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but the final act throws quite the loop, right? Yeah. Well... You can either see that as, I don't like that. Yeah. I don't like what this did. It's too. It's either too neat or it's too out of left field. Or, right. or you realize you thought it looked contrived. I thought it looked contrived because it was contrived. Like the telephone pole had those symbols on it. Mm, yeah. um, and that's the other thing that kind of came through in the Ari Aster interview. He kind of just says, like, what I wanted to make was a movie where these are lambs being led to the slaughter and they don't know it. And you as an audience member are only seeing it from their perspective. Mm. There's even a point in the interview where the interviewer is like, are we supposed to kind of think this is maybe just um, Annie going crazy? Um, And either either it's in her head or she's actually just doing this, you know, because she's gone schizophrenic or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he just actually said the audience is supposed to suspect that it might be Annie, but it is the cult of which Anne Dowd is a very significant part. But Mm. you are supposed to feel through the film that there are people on the periphery that are watching this family and are hovering just outside. Mm. And decapitation actually becomes like a very important part of it. Like like you actually have to be decapitated. And that's why Annie is like using the, is it a piano string that she's like Mm -hmm. cutting her own head off? You know, it's all part of this sort of payment cult type thing going on yeah and there are clues all throughout i mean even at the funeral there's that weird guy looking at yeah them, right you know so it's all there but as i was watching it i was like that doesn't make a lot of sense but i'm just gonna go with it and so, then it's kind of like the ending came and i was like that really doesn't make a lot of sense <laughs> yeah, right and then i'm like 
unless the ending is actually kind of the starting point and you kind of work your way back and think through all of it as if it were a cult, almost like one of the ways I put it is, is this movie sort of like the shining becomes the wicker man. Mm. Like it's a family in this house and things are happening and it's shot in a more Kubrick kind of way. And then Mm. you don't find out to the very end that it was actually sort of a cult happening around them the whole time that was really just trying to use them as sacrificial lambs or like trying to get payment into the body of a man, you know, which ends up being Peter in the end. So like her finding that photo album isn't just like a convenient plot device. It's the cult kind of designed for her to find what she needed to find sort of given moment that's sort of where i'm and and the and dowd is a much more sort of like integral part of this obviously she sort of inserts herself into annie's life but then of course annie does find out that and dowd's character joan you know did have a relationship with her mother Mm -hmm. um and is in the book like you said (sighs) who the fuck is that do you remember joan my friend her grandson died she took me in her apartment Good luck, I can't mind. Well, listen, she taught me how to do the seance. I didn't even want to, but she brought her grandson back, and I saw it and felt it just like you did with Charlie. Now, look, this is my mother's album. Now, look here. See this? See her? That's her. That's Joan. She didn't even mention knowing my mom, and I've never met her before, but she approached me. She consoled me. She told me about the seance, and she showed me how. Now, look at this. See the symbol on the necklace my mom gave me? It's her necklace, right? They're both wearing it, and they're wearing it in every photo. And look at that pattern. Did you see up there? This was painted above the body, right? In blood. You dug up the grave. It was you, wasn't it? What? All those nights you were pretending to go to the movies. Not even listening. And then the day the cemetery called, I said, oh, I won't tell her because she'd be worried. Oh, God damn it. Listen to me, Steve. I know you don't trust me, and there is nothing I can do about that. But they put a curse on us when we brought Charlie back. We made a pact with something. Something that is in this house. I don't know what it is, but it is after Peter. I watched these pages fill. All of them are Peter. I'm sorry, Steve. I don't know what I did. I don't know what I did. Peter is in danger. And I started it. If we destroy this book... Or... Is that sort of where the movie does fall short? That it doesn't connect those dots good enough for yeah, people to to kind of tough. like put that together. That's tough. You like a movie to respect the intelligence of the audience, but you also don't want a movie that just reveals it's been holding completely different cards the whole time. Right. Then there's kind of some red herrings a little bit, like the sort of like, you know, ring of light thing. Yeah. That would be payment right. the whole time, right? And we're kind of led to believe it's Charlie. And wouldn't that then mean that Payman was the one who was like moving the glasses? Like they weren't actually having a seance in communicate communication with Charlie, right? That would have been Payman, but Joan had set up the idea that it was possible to contact a dead person. Is that what you're seeing? I, I think now, like going back. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I read this on a Reddit thread too, or someone was pointing out that like, there's a reason why Annie did not want Peter to be close to his, to her mother, hmm. but she was okay with Charlie being close to her mother because her mother was being very weird with Peter because he was a man. Hmm. But that is true in the movie. Like, I don't think it's very clear like why, but it is true in the movie that like Peter was not supposed to spend a lot of time with her or was sort of like estranged from the grandmother, but Charlie got close to her. Yeah. And the idea I think was that at some point, Charlie had payment inside of her Hmm. and payment though needed a male body. And so the whole point of the occult sort of like their goal is to get payment into a man in this family why did it have to be in that family that i don't really know because of the title (laughs) i mean there's something about the grandmother character maybe she felt she you know she has some some special lineage or something like that could be i mean that's the other thing that's a little frustrating about this movie is if you take it with the idea that like you're you're kind of just in their viewpoint 
it never really gets out of that, even at the end. Right. You know, you really still don't, you still don't you get still sort of outside of Peter. that and see kind of what, yeah. what this whole cult was sort of thinking. Yeah. With something like the Wicker Man, it's a little still cl- unclear if this cult has any bearing in reality whatsoever. It yeah. could just be like a, uh, it, it could just be sort of a charismatic leader. But in this movie, there is reality to it because you see the light. Yeah. And you see like what it's doing to you these people. You see Peter at school. Yeah. Yeah. You know. But there is a scene, and there was a still on this Reddit thread that I was on. Maybe I'll link to it in there, where they actually showed a scene where Charlie does, in, in a scene where you wouldn't notice it's early on in the movie, she has that bent wrist, like how, mm. like how Peter has in the classroom. But she's sitting, and it's kind of bent down, but it's in a very sort of weird angle hmm. to kind of say, like, if you're watching closely, she is possessed by something, hmm. you know. And that's why she's got like the bird's heads and stuff like that, yeah, right. you know, and she's doing weird things at that yeah. time. And she's making those little figures. And, and she's drawing Peter and saying something, you know, all those, all those drawings are of something bad happening to him, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I guess I, I felt that the movie wasn't scary until Annie's possession mm. to me. Okay. Like... That ominous tone and everything, I, I kind of felt like, man, he's working hard to make this feel creepy. Like, that's how I felt. Yeah. It. More than, whoa, this is creepy. It was like, he's really working hard to make this feel creepy. Right. And it wasn't adding up. Now, as we talk about it, I see the horror of grief, the horror side of it, working well in those early scenes. But then, like, the first time I feel like I actually got scared is when Annie sort of like swims through the air behind mm. Peter in his room. Yeah. That's that's really freaky. <laughs> well, there's just some great imagery in this movie. Yeah. Just really great, uh, creepy imagery. Yeah. Like her, Charlie's decapitated head with all the ants on it yeah. and everything. Well, yeah. That might not scare you, but it's just disturbing. Just all the know? scenes with the ants. There's oh my a lot gosh. of ant scenes. Yeah. It's like my kitchen in early summer. <laughs> <laughs> I, And then I... I think another thing that so so for me I, I I kind of felt like the movie just wasn't that scary until it got pretty scary, but at the same time it sort of felt like, and this is me maybe not paying close enough attention because I was like, well, it's scary because now it's a cult movie. Like, oh sure, it's yeah. he just kind of turned it into that. It felt fairly uneven, though. Maybe watching it again, I would understand or see he had woven threads through it early on. And so, I, I, again, I, I think the movie is too well-crafted to call it cheap in any way. Mm. But it, I can see how it would feel cheap to some people to just sort of be like, this is a family drama. Now it's scary. Now it's incomprehensible. And we'll call that scary. Um, but I do think that there are things that I think that's an ungenerous uh, well, way of looking at I- it. Because I do think that some of the things that are unique to this that make it really scary is there's no saving Annie. There's no saving her husband, Steve. There's no saving anybody. Like, Steve burns up. That's it. Steve's dead. You lost your father. Annie's possessed, and you're kind of... I I was like wondering, okay, how are they going to exercise this demon? Then she cuts her head off. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Oh, Annie's gone. Yeah. And then in the end, you're kind of hoping for Peter to somehow be the one to figure it out, but even he couldn't, there's nothing he could have done. Right. It's like even Texas Chainsaw Massacre gave you like a pickup truck getaway. Like, it's like, so when that happens, what I think is frustrating is you kind of have to recalibrate your whole understanding of the movie. You kind of have to say, well, since this didn't follow how we're used to horror movies going, Mm -hmm. where, yeah, even if everybody dies, at least somebody's getting out here. Yeah. You know, I guess you could say Peter survived, but he did in the most confusing sort of like, what does that even mean? Well, and now he's possessed. Way. And right? now he's possessed. And, and, and if anything's cheap, it, it, to me, it would be, I didn't think I was supposed to think that much about this payment thing. Like, yeah. Like, I didn't feel like this was really a big thing until yeah. it is the thing right. at the end. Yeah. And it's kind of like, but the, family doesn't know anything about payment either and if that's sort of your goal so i can agree with everything you're saying but if you look at it more generously it's kind of like yeah at the beginning 
he does have to work hard to just get you to feel like this is even a horror movie. And he does it almost completely at the beginning with sound design, Yeah, which I watched this because I had to watch it in my bedroom Mm. and I couldn't make a lot of noise. So I put AirPods on with the Roku. So it was right in my ear. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest anyone who hasn't to, if you feel like rewatching it, to do it with headphones because it is insane sound design. Mm. Um, Like the clucking sound in that eulogy scene starts in the left ear moves to the middle, goes to the right. And then like they call it, I think in the interview, he called it the contra beat, but it's that little pulsing thing that just kind of happens. Are you done? Almost. So maybe we finish the toy after the quiz. What do you think? Okay. Okay. And the way to read that, if you don't like the movie, is he's just having the score do all the work. Mm -hmm. Like, this isn't actually scary, and that's just cheap. That's usually what they do in post when a scene's not working. Right. (laughs) They say, can you punch this up with the score? But knowing that in this movie, that that score was meant to do that lifting from the beginning, from the very incarnation of this whole script— those scenes aren't actually going to be very scary, but we need to make people realize that there's something sinister going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, horror is one of those things kind of like comedy where it's hard to convince somebody if it didn't work for them, it just didn't work for them, you know? Right. But I know for me, I just felt a little chilled watching it even at the beginning. That there was something about just the stillness of everything and, and just sort of the overall look of the film. Very clean, but also kind of dark with that score where I just kept thinking like, I'm just tense. Like there's something that's going to happen here, right? you know? And it just took a really long time for that to happen. happen. But then when it did happen, for me at least, the first part that I was just like, oh my God, was when Charlie was decapitated. Yeah. And I was just like, you have all that tension leading up to something incredibly tragic. Yeah. Part of the shock of Charlie's death is it felt like Charlie was the point. Mm, Yeah. And then she's gone. A little like psycho in that way where the person mm, that you think yeah. you're following is now just gone. Right. Right. Now what? That's true. Yeah, that does have kind of a psycho feel to it. Um, well, and also the way she died where it's like, you think you're like, okay, so if she dies, it's going to be through the nut the allergy. Shock, yeah. And then... And then it's just like, oh no, that's just way more horrific. Yeah. You think you've got a handle on what <laughs> right. makes this scene hard to watch and then he takes it... To this other further. level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is up with the tiny rooms? Do you have a thought on that? Um, that's a good question. Because she's making specific scenes. Of her own life. Right. She's hesitant to go to the grief groups, but she will fairly, I guess, callously (laughs) depict scenes. Mm Mm-hmm. From her life, like Charlie's death and her mom nursing Charlie, something like that. And like, so I, yeah, I guess I just don't know where that fits. Yeah. Aside from as like a really interesting transition into the The first scene. Yeah. Well, I think that if you, if you kind of take the line of how is this movie portraying and talking about things like grief and tragedy miniatures to me are like a way of creating a type of control. Right. That's what I was thinking. You know, like it's a way for someone to kind of feel like they're getting a handle on things. Like if I can just kind of create this little world and it's completely within my control, I can take what my reality is and Uh sort of give it some concrete feel and, and be sort of the author of it. Right. And then, yeah, she does destroy it. Um, And she's not, responding to the gallery right like she's behind on it sort of is yeah i mean is it kind of a heavy-handed sort of way of saying you any control you think you have you you just don't really have you know yeah. it, it takes something like the death of a child or to is kind of it, make it feel like this was all futile like it was all kind of yeah. 
all for nothing anyways it wasn't working yeah you know? like it's a it's a substitute for processing your grief right whatever catharsis actually... this was offering is not working anymore but that all feels kind of tangential to the ultimate direction of the movie i mean it doesn't it doesn't in that she thinks that her life is ordered in a certain way and it's actually being orchestrated by a cult that she had no idea existed right but if it's like that family drama sort of thing about unprocessed grief it sort of feels like it just goes nowhere and destroying the rooms is a way to show that, all right, we're off the room thing. Well, unless you were, because the camera starts where you're sort of in the miniature, right? Right. And maybe it's sort of like a, in kind of like an inception kind of way. It's like the family doesn't realize they're kind of being treated like miniatures. Mm-hmm. There's something going on outside them that's controlling them mm-hmm. and they don't even know it. Right. And you are kind of within this miniature mm. and she is controlling that whole world. And I think in a way it's like on one hand, it's when she destroys it, it's showing that she could destroy it. Yeah. This outside force could just come can in and destroy, destroy everything. Yeah. And then she doesn't even realize, or maybe that is when she sort of realized, well, I don't think she really ever does realize no. um, what's actually going on. Yeah. Cause she gets possessed before she can learn anything. Right, um, but that's that, the real tragedy. <laughs> right, but you know, but that, that, but that was an outside force on them as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's one reading. I, I think, who knows? Maybe it's uh, just that Ari Aster thought it would be cool to yeah. mess with miniatures for a little kinda bit. Creepy. <laughs> it is kind of creepy. You yeah. know, it feels, and maybe this is just because I'm thinking of Tony Collette and I'm thinking of ending things, but it feels a little Charlie Kaufman mm. inspired. Certainly, like. Anomalisa and uh, Synecdoche, New York are both movies about trying to control your life through art or puppets (laughs) in Anomalisa, but it doesn't feel as focused on in Hereditary as much. But I I guess the title, Hereditary, is a question of how much outside influence of just who your family is hmm. affects what happens to you and who you are. And I guess that's a lot of what's happening here is that a freak accident and a shitty mother and all of these things can all contrive to affect your life no matter what you've done. Right. It works on almost two levels. You've got sort of the whole occult thing mm-hmm. happening and then you've got the family horror kind of yeah. happening. You could watch that mo- the movie on those two planes, yeah. and they're almost like two different types of horror movie. People who are very disappointed with the ending, it's because they were just gelling so well with the family horror. Sure. Um, and th- and then the ending there kind of just feels like a cheap ending. Yeah. Like you're kind of like just cutting all that other stuff out. Like, what about that horror? Yeah. Like all that horror we're just gonna kind of forget about and yeah. just it wasn't you know, horrific enough, so you had to just throw in this third act. Right, right. And and that was actually one of the things I feel like um that was sort of the conclusion of Josh Larson's uh, movie critic for, does the mm-hmm. film spotting podcast. Um, he liked the movie, but he I, he he did say that like he thought the ending kind of cut the legs out from what he thought the true horror was, which was the more grief and the things like that. Yeah. Like that was the yeah. true horror, and that like nothing that. nothing like n- nothing like that horror can compare to the horror of just an occult type thing happening. Yeah. And that he was just, he just thought it was more interesting. Yeah. That stuff was just more interesting. I agree. It does feel abandoned. Abandoned is the right word for it. I guess where it feels uneven is that you've got grief, which is incredibly realistic and common. So like, you're not as in control of your life as you think because tragedy can strike at any moment. And that's horrifying. And the grief surrounding that is potentially more horrifying. And also when you kind of get the sense that Tony Collette's got some mental health issues, like when she snaps, you're that it was sort of like, oh, maybe that's the heredity we're talking about. Like she yeah, inherited like maybe that's where the movie's mom. gonna go. Yeah. And it's like, okay, we've got these realistic sorts of things, and then the movie was like, No, actually, her mom was in a cult, and that cult has been orchestrating all this stuff. So you want to talk about stuff outside your control, and then it's like, Yeah, that's scary. 
And you're, yeah, like, I mean, like I said, the, the first time I genuinely got scared in the movie is once Tony Collette's possessed. Mm-hmm. But it's also just sort of like you were on your way to making a really flavorful meal and then you just dumped a ton of salt on it because salt salt gives a lot of flavor. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess it tastes good, but that wasn't the meal that I thought you were making. And I know that there's an element of I can't, dictate what movie i'm watching you know like i think when we talked about no country for old men that's an incredible example of that that they were like hey you know that story like the classic sort of getaway western like we're mashing stuff up and then it's like no actually we're talking about the meaninglessness meaninglessness of all of that stuff this doesn't feel like it does it in a way where i feel like I was wrong for wishing for a different movie. I feel like for the most part, aside from those Easter eggy sort of things that you catch the second time you watch it, this was sort of a bait and switch. Well, yeah. I mean, I think people, especially if you don't like the ending, it's that's, that's what you're going to think. It's not even that I don't like the ending. It's, it's just sort of like, that wasn't the movie you were showing us. And I don't know what that means, like if that's my problem or if it's his. Well, I think that, uh, and and No Country, I think a lot of people feel that way too, where you get to the ending. Yeah, definitely. And in, and in a way, it's like, this movie's not going to be easy to figure out. And it's almost like when the ending comes, it feels like they're almost doing it with a snicker. And I think people who don't like No Country for Old Men think that's what's going on. Yeah. And I think that there's a way you could think this is what's going on well, with this. Well, it might and be, it, but I get, but the, the yeah. sticker's a part of it. Right. That's what I mean. <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to say about this, too. And I can see where, because the topics you're dealing with are so heavy, sure. that it can feel like you're, you're almost making light of it mm. in a way that could feel offensive to some, even. So I guess like, that's my question, is how does the ending fit with the idea of grief and everything or is it not grief and it is about that like outside control thing and he just cranked the idea of you don't have total control up to 11 yeah (laughs) up to 11 um i mean you want the grief to feel real and horrific obviously and i think if you go back to the idea of these are people who they're Mm -hmm. sacrificial i mean basically they know like if you if you go with the idea of this cult it's like they know they're going to basically kill all this family until it gets into peter but if you go with the initial idea of like but the family doesn't know that that's what's going on and Mm -hmm. you're only within the perspective of the family so if you're the family going through this that is going to be the horror for you until the end when it's not like for peter the horror is Partly, I mean, we didn't even get, we didn't even get into like the guilt that he feels, right? And that whole level of horror that's on top of what Tony Collette's horror is like. They everyone has their sort of own horror that right. they're dealing with, and then it's kind of like until it becomes, oh my god, it's almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like it's like now I just need to survive because now I've figured out what's going on, and that's when Peter's like, I don't even have time to grieve my father who just burned alive because my mother is right. coming out, and it just kind of goes a little ape shit at that point, yeah. you know. And then the movie reveals what had been going on sort of all along at the very end, and that's where it ends. Now, could there be a version of this movie that continued a little bit longer and kind of saw where Peter went with that idea of grief and guilt and resolved some of that through maybe something like that, but he's yeah. not Peter anymore. He's payment now. Right. So it's one of those things where I, c- I can agree with everything you're saying and I can understand why any audience member would rightfully feel that way. Yeah. But you know, it's, uh, this is what the movie is. And I, I mean, I, I think it's totally fine to think that those themes were maybe cut short or cheapened or, abandoned as you said but then i think that might be where going back and rewatching it within the framework that you know it has i honestly don't know when i you know we we would have to almost record a new podcast where we could rewatch it and kind of be like well how does knowing where this goes Mm -hmm. where does the sort of grief and the guilt and all of those themes that felt abandoned are they or are they just sort of like that's that act of the, the movie. lens changes yeah. later. Like, like, the, like the horror in this time of the movie is this. Yeah. And then it sort of shifts into this. Yeah. You know. And maybe it's just maybe it's just really ambitious and it wasn't executed perfectly. Yeah. You know, that could be too. Yeah. 
And in, in the hands of someone else, could it have sort of given equal levity to all of those ideas? Well, I guess uh, what I'm what I'm kind of wondering, or what I'm what I'm thinking of, is as you were talking about Ari Aster not wanting to be a horror movie guy, but kind of becoming one. I'm thinking of Todd Phillips, who directed Joker, right? Yeah, he really wanted to make a movie about mental health, mental illness but knew the way to get that to be the most audience was by making Joker, you know, making it, putting right. it, making it part of like a superhero complex Two mixed results, right? Like, did you just downplay mental illness by sure. making it in the Joker? Yeah. Did you just glorify mental illness and the violence and that can accompany it? Uh, or by by making the Joker kind of the hero, even though ostensibly we know he's a villain, did you just connect mental illness to violence in a way that was irresponsible? Sure, yeah. Did you, in an attempt to get your movie made and seen, distort your initial idea, you know? Uh, and I don't think Hereditary would be considered as problematic potentially as joker um but is it just pretty difficult to have an agenda <laughs> or have an idea that you are compromising is one word for it remolding in order to just get it made well i think you're this is a really good point because i think it's interesting that you brought up no country and i think it's i think joker is a great example and i think this movie fits in here too what we're talking about with all three of those movies are movies that present themselves as genres yeah, but the people making them are not fully invested in that genre. Right. And I want to read this as one more quote from that interview and just see what you think of it, because he does say in that interview, this is from Vulture, and we'll link to it in the show notes. I highly recommend it. He's talking about Hereditary, Ari Aster is, and he said, I had always seen the film as being an existential horror film. And again, there is a demand to resolve things when you're making a genre film. Mm-hmm. But I'm also hoping there's a certain level of irresolution in the resolution that we come to. And so part of me wonders if he's not even fully invested in his ending. Yeah. But he knows that he's making a genre film. He's channeling it through a horror film because he feels like this is a way I can actually play with that theme and do it in a way where people will actually want to sit through something like that. Right. And they did. Hereditary made a lot of money. Mm But he also knows he's still making a horror movie. Yeah. Like, I've got to wrap this up somehow. Yeah. You know, and how do you do that? Well, you can kind of fall back on a traditional genre ending, but just have a little bit of friction there, a little bit of irresolution in the resolution is the way he puts it, mm-hmm. you know, where it's just enough to kind of feel like, yeah, that was a horror movie. I didn't feel like I started watching a horror yeah. movie and it's not a horror movie. Yeah. At the end of the day, this ends... And you still feel like, yeah, that was a horror movie. And not to compare, like, there's no reason to compare movies, but No Country for Old Men had the guts to end it on the original idea, not on the genre. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And I would never say that Hereditary is in the echelon of No Country for Old Men. No, that's what I'm saying. It's not, (laughs) there's not a real point. I I feel like everything that I'm, I'm thinking to make the movie coherent, it's just, I think he had a big task. I think... It doesn't, on one viewing, from one person who didn't read anything about it. Right. It was ambitious. He went for it. It was scary at times. Tremendous performance from Tony Collette showed a, 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 a certainly a new entry into modern horror. Mm-hmm. But is it brilliant? Is it everything it set out to be? I, I just don't know because I, I can't put my finger on what it set out to be. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I think there's no doubt about it that the movie has a level of whiplash to it. Yeah. And I think that it ultimately comes down to some people are going to have that whiplash and be like, yeah. I yeah, I don't think that works. And other people are going to see that whiplash and say, I just enjoyed that feeling. I, I enjoyed sure. that thrill. I enjoyed that. Like, I thought it was this thing and then it was that. Wow, that's awesome. And some people yeah. are going to say, I thought it was this thing and it was that. And that's that's a Confusing. shitty thing to do, yeah. and I hate that you did that to me. You know, I, like I'm and, not, I'm not in any of those. I don't hold. I really don't hate this movie. Yeah, I'm just kind of confused by it <laughs> in a way that I don't think is fully my fault. Sure, I don't think there's anything you didn't see in this movie. 
don't think there's anything I didn't see in this movie. I think we just had different, a little mm-hmm. bit different reactions to it. You know, yeah. Honestly, I think part of it comes down to I just kind of like it because it's a horror movie that isn't like anything I've really seen before. Yeah, and there's something to say for that. And too. and it was something that gave me the horror movie experience. Like sure. I was just kind of on edge yeah. while I watched it. Yeah. We've had a really good conversation about what makes it different. Yeah. Like what why is this different from other horror and movies? And it is different. And then at the end of the day it's kind of like, well, you know, did you like that or did not? Did you like that or not? <laughs> and you don't even have to say you didn't. You can just be like, I was fine with it. Yeah. I didn't care that much about yeah. it. it. And that's fine. fine if that's where you're at. It's about where I am. Is so <laughs> is the question then what's the point? Like what's that's the part of it? What's the point of that's it? That's part of it. Why did you feel you needed to be so ambitious about yeah. it? Like you, sure. you didn't really know what the point was. And I think that, you know, for me, I just don't know that I need that answered. Like yeah. if he could kind of even just play with certain ideas. Yeah. And not really say, I don't really have much more point other than to say, we can do this with horror. Yeah. You know, if you want, you can do this with horror. Yeah. It's kind of like, okay, that's that's satisfying to me. I can totally see why it's not satisfying to someone else if they're kind of like, yeah, but for what purpose? For yeah. what point? I don't really get it. That's interesting because <laughs> you're saying you're saying that somebody's doing something new, regardless right. of the point. You don't care about the answer to the question, kind what's of. the point? And also because the answer can also be kind of found in yourself sometimes sure. like like i don't really know what ari aster's point was but boy it sure did get me thinking about this sure. or it got me thinking about certain yeah. things well what's so interesting to me is that you say you don't really care about the que- uh, the answer to the question what the point is and that kind of elevates it for you i don't really care about the answer to the question what the point is <laughs> because it was fine right. like that's right, right. sort right. of what i'm feeling <laughs> like in that way i think we're best buds yeah, like, okay we're both like <laughs> Somebody's like, what's the point? And we're both like, I don't really care, but for a different reason. <laughs> yeah. Or it's a, it's a, we could we could do a, a mutual understanding. Sure. Yeah. That. Yeah. You mutual know. understanding. It's a mutual that, understanding. Definitely. There's no animosity here, but yeah. like, I'm fine with your three and a half and I would probably, I'm keeping it at four. That's fine. Um, so mutual understanding, I think, which- is good. It's been uh, a long time, actually. It has been a long time. And uh, I kind of like that better. Uh, for this uh, holiday spooktacular, That's, it's a good seasonal I mean, conclusion, I think. Yeah, we we wished for an unpleasant spooktacular to our view, listeners. That's true and to you, you and your family, and I, I think it would it would be disingenuous to the season if we were consistently best buds. It would be too pleasant. We need a little friction. It'd be too pleasant. That's right. And we need That's a little right. bit of a, a not too un, scary, un, but some some unpleasantries. Yeah. So right. Well, then that kind of wraps up the season here. Yeah. And, uh, well, that this this, this, this part of the season. Then we move into. We've got plenty more. Yeah, we're moving right into. We're, tis we're tis, right into tis that. that season for Tom Hanks and Turkey, and thanks giving thanks for Hanks. Yeah. I mean, let's get to it then. Let's talk about what T. Hanks movie we are going to be watching for this year's T. Hanks Giving. All right. So not only is this T. Hanks Giving, it's also the gap year. Yeah. And and actually, I was thinking about this. We're going to take a break in December. So yeah. this is the last movie. This is the cap of our gap year. The cap of the gap. The cap of the gap. Wow. So what? I, I can't really think of a better way than with a T. Hanksgiving celebration at the same time. Oh, I know. The Tom Hanks movie to conclude our wonderful gap year, which has been great, yeah. by the way. But for this T. Hanksgiving, we're going to go way back. Believe it or not, this is a gap year movie, movie that neither yeah, of us have seen. Yeah, some of seen. you might be offended by I this. I think some of you might say, hey, you, uh, how can you even do T. Hanksgiving episodes and have this be a, such a glaring gap? Yeah. But in case you haven't figured it out yet, this is 1989. This is The Burbs. Yeah. Uh, starring the man himself, of course, Tom oh, Hanks, course. directed by Joe Dante. Right. But uh, this cast, I mean, you, you started naming it. Uh, Bruce, Off mic. Bruce yeah. Dern, Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher, Yeah. I mean, some other Corey Feldman, faces. yeah, Henry Gibson. I'm I'm excited to see it. Um, I really Tag don't line. know what to expect. It's a it's it's a it's comedy comedy. I think it's supposed to be funny. Okay. I mean, if you think about like, okay, so here's the tagline. Okay. He's a man of peace in a savage land, suburbia. Hmm. So it's like a suburban satire, maybe. Hmm. Think like. Uh, American Beauty meets Gremlins. Yes. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Okay. With Maybe. hopefully less Kevin Spacey vibes. <laughs> oh, it's T. Hanks vibes. Good I vibes. Know. Nothing good, good only, only good vibes only here. Come on. Now, speaking of hereditary, which yeah, we just talked about, of course, did. if you haven't been paying attention, 
for over an hour. Yeah, if you're just joining us for some reason. Now, this is a good segue because I read the tagline, but here's the actual like description in IMDb. It's an overstressed suburbanite and his neighbors are convinced that the new family on the block is part of a murderous satanic cult. Whoa. Payment. It might be. Who knows? Maybe uh, maybe, maybe there's going to be a completely out of left wait, wait, field wait, 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 third act. What if the Burbs is actually just the story of the neighbors oh. of Hereditary? Like, they're just kind of looking out the window yeah. and being like, what, the, what is going on over yeah. there? Yeah. Well, I know Annie's mom died recently. Right. Yeah, but there's something else happening. There's something going on. Did no. you hear about Charlie? Who's Charlie? Annie and Steve's daughter. <laughs> no, what? She died. She decapitated. She what? Really got knocked off. It's superbia, I tell you. If I had a better Tom Hanks impression, I would do <laughs> that conversation in his voice. But... Yeah, tis the season yes. for giving thanks for Hanks. I'm excited for this. It's going to be a great gap year, T-Hanks fusion. Giving thanks for Hanks. Giving thanks for Hanks. So if you've got thoughts on uh, Hereditary or The Burbs. Yeah, either one. Got other um, little utterances of thanks for Hanks. Hey, go back through those archives and watch all the other T-Hanks giving movies that we've yeah. done. And, and uh, our holiday spooktaculars. Oh, spooktacular. There's tons of stuff in should last the you about 14, 15 episodes. Yeah. I mean, there's there's lots of content there. Coming Just on 10 years of content. Lots of content. So do that. And then we do want to hear from you. So yeah. to listen to or comment on this or any of our past episodes, you can find us at canwestillbefriends.net or email us at feedback at canwestillbefriends.net. You can find us on Instagram at Can We Still Be Friends Pod. And if you'd like to leave us a voice message and perhaps be featured on the podcast, call us at 847 306 9532 or email us a voice memo. As always, we'd love it if you could subscribe and leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts. Those ratings really help spread the word about our show. Can We Still Be Friends is written and produced by Ryan Ebling and Nate Goss and edited by Nate Goss. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. 